Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? John, I am doing well, and good morning to you. Yeah. Good to see you again. Good to be back. I know it's uh, like if this was something I was hired to do, I'd be fired right now for <laughs> the time we've taken off, but late is better than never. And today we are following up on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Ascension. In uh, undergrad, my uh, professor of worship said that he believed that the Ascension is the forgotten doctrine yeah. of Christianity. And then uh, in seminary, uh, one of uh, another Baptist professor said the same thing. I don't know if that's equally true of Protestants and Catholics or not, but given um, our mutual influence on one another in America, I suspect it probably is the case. Um, so today, I do not want to just assume that anything is obvious to anybody. I want to look at the ascension at a very basic level of what it is, what it says about Christ, and then what it says about us. Um, the logic and the fact and the significance of the mystery of Christ's ascension into heaven is all throughout the writings of St. Paul. And in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Since therefore you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth. Uh, for when Christ is revealed, who is your life, then you too shall be revealed with him. So the Apostle Paul has this strong conviction that the fact of Christ's ascension into heaven changes the way that we as Christians should be living every day. Yeah. And that if we really see by faith Christ ascended in the heavens, that we are given the power to see, um, see everything from a heavenly perspective. So you think it, we should start off first just very basically, what does Christ's ascension mean? I think we should start off like that, yeah. Yeah, so Acts chapter 1. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I'll read it. It's, it's very quick. But um, then I'll make uh, a few comments, Mark, and feel free to add anything. So this is uh, verse 6 in the first chapter of the book of Acts. I'm using the uh, New Revised Standard Version. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going... And they were gazing up toward heaven. Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, there are some fascinating things that, if we had time, we could dig into about Jesus' understanding of the nature of Israel, of his return, of what true authority consists of, and how closely Pentecost is linked with the Ascension, but those are for a future podcast. What we want to look at right now is just really what happens. As he's saying this, um, he goes up, and the Gospel to Luke, I think, makes even more explicit, which is pretty much volume one to the Acts of the Apostles, that Christ descends uh, in a posture of blessing. 
which is really cool. Um, so this may seem obvious, okay, but it's just worth stating. Christ's back is not turned on them. His eyes are on them. His hands are outstretched in a posture of blessing. And if you're looking at the hands of Christ in blessing, uh, they still have the scars of his crucifixion. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So when we talk about Christ, Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, Ascension, Pentecost, they're all present together because Jesus is a person and not a list of events. So um, that is all present, and he ascends in a posture of blessing. He is uh, in ascending into heaven. Um, he is taken out of their vision through a cloud. Uh, clouds occur throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament at events like the Transfiguration as um, a sign of the presence of God. Now, I just want to make um, one thing clear here. This is the way my Lutheran professor pointed this out. The ascension of our Lord cannot be replicated with a jetpack. Okay. This You're going to have to explain that one. This is not ordinary travel through space. Okay? So the point of the ascension is not that, like, the balloon that my four-year-old lost a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. that he is still just going higher and higher and higher and higher, and heaven is somewhere galaxies and galaxies and galaxies away. So we have to get out of our purely naturalistic way of thinking about the universe and use the terminology that scripture itself uses. When we get to the epistle of Hebrews, it says not that when Jesus entered into sanctuary by passing through galaxies and Milky Way, etc., he passes through a veil. Okay? So there's something there is something physical about the ascension. Okay? Jesus is still in his body. He doesn't discard his body. Jesus is human for all eternity by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. Um, but there's something sacramental mm. about this as well. Um, the Through the cloud, um, he enters into a dimension which we cannot see. Anything yeah. you want to add to that, Mark? Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, I think with this, sometimes uh, we want to be careful not to become almost deistic in thinking about Jesus. So the deists, uh, they had a, an idea of God in the 1700s, just really quickly, uh -huh. where uh, God is like a watchmaker. He's a clockmaker. He makes the world uh, according to these rules and principles and laws. He winds up the clock. He winds up creation, just lets it go because it can run on its own. But he is rather distant. He's kind of removed. He doesn't really enter into human history very much. Uh, and with this, like you said, he, he, he passes into a different dimension. But sometimes I think we get we got to be careful not to have this picture of uh, when Jesus is out there, he's far removed. He's, we've got the Holy Spirit down here, but Jesus is just waiting to come back. Yeah. So we say that in the creed, he ascended and uh, to the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And So we're just sort of left to figure out life. Yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. Maybe he can give us some wisdom and power, like he said to be witnesses in chapter 1, but Jesus is actually gone. He, he's in this other dimension only one day to return. So we saw him at the ascension. We'll see him again at his return. But basically, we're just sort of left on our own. And we, I think we can, we re, sometimes we have this almost deistic picture of this removed Jesus who's not actually involved, who isn't yeah. present, who isn't 
really involved in what's going on in the church. But we have the Holy Spirit, and, you know, that's kind of good enough. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you phrase it that way, um, Mark, because that was the exact fear of the apostles prior to Christ's crucifixion when he speaks about going away. And Christ assures them, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not leaving you as orphans. Um, So if we as moderns have a little bit of cognitive dissonance here because of the way that we imagine space and the universe, I think a second difficulty for us is that um, based on my ancestors being mean to Americans, uh, we don't like monarchy. And that actually, uh, maybe, maybe it's good politically, I don't know. Maybe I'm a Tory. But uh, in reading scripture, it can actually not be that helpful because we're going to look at... So when Jesus ascends to the throne, there's a whole tapestry of meaning to that. Um, But I think oftentimes because we have a a vision of the monarch as some lazy dude sitting on his butt far away from the sufferings and the needs of his actual people. Well, to the Jews... When they think of the throne of David, they don't think of passivity. You think of action. Yeah. David is with us. So even though they had bad kings, and they had really bad kings, yeah. okay, um, they could they could definitely commiserate with us good and bad presidents, okay? They had a very checkered history. Mm-hmm. But they didn't forget what it was like to have a great king on the throne. Mm-hmm. And having a great king on the throne meant that the throne was not far removed in some ivory tower in Jerusalem, but... They actually felt that David was with them. Well, multiply that times infinity, and you have their understanding of the throne of God. That God sitting on his throne, he's not like Zeus on Mount Olympus. Like, doesn't it suck to be a human? Aren't we glad that we're not <laughs> suffering? But the throne of God actually um, is very near to the experiences of actual humans. Well, in the Ascension, we have the second person of the Trinity who rightfully sits on the throne. Um, in one sense, he's never left it, you know, because Jesus didn't take a break from being God. And that's really important, that we don't misunderstand as if Christ left the heavens in some place. But in the ascension, Christ is returning um, humanity by his very human nature. He's bringing it back into the direct presence of God. So what we have is we have Christ has perfected our nature by his birth, by his life of perfect obedience to the Father, by his death, by his purification for sins, by his resurrection and victory over death. He now brings all of that with him, all of that in his humanity into the presence of the Father. So by him going to the throne, it's not, oh, well, Jesus is taking a vacation and the Holy Spirit now is at work, but... Um, what we see in the ascension is not the separation of Jesus from earth, but Jesus, who has taken our nature into his, he's actually bridging the gap between heaven and earth. He hasn't collapsed it yet, and that's not until his return, but he's bridged the distance between heaven and earth so that heaven and earth can now permeate one another in a way that since Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise, has not been the case for however many thousands of or millions of years um until this very moment that he's returned well and it's good that you you in what you just said you kept mentioning on the throne on the throne and i think that's part of that that disconnect because you know again we say he ascended to the right hand of the father from there he will come to return to come he will return to judge living in the dead that um 
sometimes the ascension can be pictured as, okay, he's going away. But as you point out, the ascension is an enthronement. We often forget that he is enthroned, which means he is going to be active as king. Yep. He's not just sitting there. He didn't just go away and ascend it, and he's just sort of hanging out, waiting to return. I think you make a really good point that the whole point of enthronement is that he he would rule as king, which just implies activity. Mm-hmm. He's doing stuff as king. He he is active as king. Yep. So, um, Mark, if it sounds right to you, I would like to look a little bit at um, the priestly dimension of this. Sure. And then if you want to talk about the royal, the kingly dimension of this, because I think you had some stuff to share about that. Um, but if we look at the epistle to the Hebrews, for the next four hours, I would like to read... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just summarizing Hebrews. Um, Hebrews presents two things very clearly that I think um, I've heard pitted against each other. And uh, I don't believe that's okay as a Catholic. As an Anglican, I was taught in third articles, if anyone interprets one passage of Scripture in such a way that it is repugnant to another, I love English, Victorian language, then that's heresy, okay? So, like, if you're using Scripture to disprove Scripture, it's a bad idea. If you're using Scripture to mutually illuminate other portions of Scripture, okay, that's good. So what are the two things in Hebrews that should be a both hand instead of an either or. Here's what they are. We are shown very clearly that Christ, when he ascends in Hebrews chapter 1, it's his famous image, I'm sure our listeners will know it, that having ascended into the heavens, he sat down Mm. at the right hand of the Father. And we should hear Christ's final words from the cross, tell us die, it is finished. Why does he sit down? Because he did it. He has completed the process of purification. He has atoned for the sins of humanity. Um, The words of John the Baptist are fulfilled. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ has taken away the sins of the world. He's defeated uh, the principalities and the powers of this earth, sin, death, hell. Um, But in sitting down, does Jesus kind of just kick back and do nothing? No. He doesn't have a ball game on. He's not sitting there with a bag of chips and just... Hanging out. I'm really interested in what Jesus does think about sports. I don't know. Um, but <clears throat> whatever it is, if you jump ahead to like Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, which are really profound look at um, Christ's priestly ministry, I'll summarize this very quickly. Here is Paul's argument. Everything that God provided for Israel in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the priesthood, in the rituals, in the sacrifices, that was symbolic. It was symbolic of something future, and it was symbolic not only horizontally across time, it was symbolic vertically on earth of something in heaven. And what it's symbolic of is Christ's priesthood in the heavens. Christ is our priest in the heavens. A priest is someone who presents an offering. And here's the both and. Jesus died once on the cross. And that death and that resurrection is sufficient for the salvation of all humans who are purified through the blood of Christ. 
But he continues to present that offering in the heavens. It's not an offering that he's done presenting. He's made the offering, but that act of Christ in time is an act made present in eternity through his ongoing ministry. Here's a practical example of that. Uh, We Catholics believe that when the priests offer Christ's body and blood on the altar, it participates in Christ's offering of himself on Calvary. Some people get real nervous. Well, Jesus only died once, to which we say, yes, he did. He only died once. You know what else scripture says? In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it speaks of him as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So Christ was slain and is slain. This is why when the Apostle John hears the roar of the Lion of Judah, he turns around, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb who, quote, is slain. So even in Christ's resurrection and glorified state, he has the wounds of the crucifixion on his hands, and he he perpetually presents the offering of his death for us in the present, in the heavens. That's good. That's good. Well, it's scripture. I didn't come up with it. Anything you want to add to that, Mark? Uh, no, it, uh, no, that was good. I no, just good. have one, one quick, but it, it's totally going back to chapter 1. Uh, when you mentioned that he took his seat at the right hand, there in verse 3, if you want, uh, if you want to look back in the Old Testament, for, for those listening, uh, wisdom, the book of Wisdom 7, verse 26 is kind of a, Paul, I think Paul might be, pull, or not Paul, sorry. Uh, actually, you know, the early church thought that Paul wrote Hebrews. It's plausible. Yeah. Uh, the author of Hebrews, mm-hmm. in talking about the, the refulgence of his glory or the splendor of his glory, uh, might be drawing from Wisdom, chapter 7. So. Oh, okay. What does it say in Wisdom, chapter 7? Uh, it says... You have it pulled up? I didn't have it pulled up. But wisdom, chapter 7, verse 26. You got it? Is it about wisdom? It is about wisdom, I think. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. You can go real deep with wisdom. It says, For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Yeah. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. Yeah. So that verse 26, when he talks about the, the reflection, uh, it's that same idea. Uh, this translation, the New American says the refulgence, which that word is used in both Hebrews and in wisdom. So you so, look at verse 26 of wisdom, it's like, oh, okay, that's wisdom as personified by Jesus. So. Yeah. So um, when the early church was trying to work out Christ's two natures as divine and human and your sort of two opponents in debate were Athanasius and Arius Mm. do you know what two books of scripture were brought up most of the council of Nicaea I'm going to guess wisdom and Sirach wisdom and Proverbs wisdom and Proverbs oh yeah Proverbs Proverbs 8 so if you think 
uh, wisdom is not part of the Bible, it's it's kind of awkward to ask for then why was every bishop in the world arguing about what it said about uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be kind of like if we had an argument today and I, I don't know, I brought like um, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. I mean, I like that book, but like, if it's not part of the canon, why am I yeah. <laughs> making a case yeah. from it? Yeah. But yeah, John, your, your point about <clears throat> him in this priestly function, I think that really serves a pastoral function for us. I think you laid that out pretty well, that he, it, it, we are feeding off him. The, the, what happened at Calvary is made present to us now, throughout time, throughout history. Uh, there's never going to be a time and a place where we can't be sustained by what Jesus did on the cross. <clears throat> and as you mentioned, and you, you cited from John, where Jesus says to Telestai, in the perfect, and for those of you who care about Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means oh, something yeah. happened once in the past. It, it, there's, a, there's another way to say, you know, I went to the store, and it was just this one-time event, and I'm just mm -hmm. describing something in the past. It's finished, it's completed, we refer it to the past. But when Jesus says that on the cross, that the, the use of the perfect means there was something that happened, a one-time event in the past, that continues to have effects on into the future. So his priestly ministry, I think, is very encouraging for us that you bring it up. That And as, as he works through the priesthood, that there is this place where we can—Hebrews uh, chapter 4 mentions we, we approach the throne of grace—that there is this ongoing feeding and nourishing and uh, offering on behalf of the people that sometimes we can feel like we, we were talking before the, the program about this historical disconnect that— yeah, sometimes we, we look at this stuff that happened 2,000 years ago, and we okay, well, that was great, but how does it impact me? How does that affect me? Mm -hmm. that as you talked about this, this lack of a better word, we'll draw on the fathers, this mystical reality of these, these spiritual things that happened as the Son of God becomes incarnate and really re, re, it transforms the world, reshapes the yeah. world, because now, like you said, you, you always have this mystical integration between the spiritual realm, the, the reality of a triune God. And as we try and live out our life, I think so many people, uh, it's been a tough couple of years. Mm -hmm. People feel discouraged. They feel alone. They feel orphaned. We feel like, well, where is God in all of this? So the passages that you brought out that, no, we actually do have a high priest. He is still ministering mm -hmm. to us on our behalf for our sustenance, for our life, so that we can get through this. I mean, you know, we're not we're not immune to pain and suffering and the difficulties of the world. And I think so many people, and myself included, at times, especially the last two, two years, how am I going to get through this? Yep. Well, uh, the priestly function doesn't stop, and what he accomplished for us at the cross is not just a an historical reality that happened way back. Yep. We, we are nourished by it, we're encouraged by it, we're strengthened by it, because he's still in that place of priest. Mm -hmm. So I think it's incredibly encouraging. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, I think one of the ways I've, I've seen this put before is that uh, Christ's offering of love revealed in the cross is not trapped in that moment, yeah. but it's made eternally present in every moment. So the resurrection doesn't 
stop Christ's offering of love. It's really the proof that it works. Right. That love does conquer sin. Life does con- conquer death. Right. Um, and and ascended in heaven, he offers that in such a way. And as Paul goes on to say, basically he, through his flesh, he opened the doors for us. So the temple now, as he says in John chapter 2, is his own body. So there's a lot of mysteries coming together here. In, in yep. entering into the temple of heaven, well, he is the temple. Like, it's not so much that there's space for God in heaven as much as it is, yep. you think about it theologically, that, um, that God creates heaven within himself for us. And um, through this offering, like you said, Mark, like, in the midst of, of our Calvaries, in the midst of our sufferings, um, we, through the offering of Jesus Christ, can be brought into the, in the presence of God. That's why Paul says, in the present, since you are seated, not you will be, but since in this life you are seated with God, since you are raised with Christ, seek the things above. Yeah. And I know you're reading uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, um, I'm reading that as well, and one of the comments that uh, JP2 makes is uh, that the the church is actually quite sacramental. Mm -hmm. We make visible these invisible realities. So the presence of God, the presence of Jesus is lived out in his church. Mm -hmm. So I think it tying into what you're saying, the encouragement as we speak to our culture, as we try and encourage ourselves as the body of Christ, that in the church is the manifest presence of God. So as Jesus is enthroned, he's ascended, he's enthroned, well, where is his presence? Where is that encouraging uh, presence of Jesus in the world? Well, the church, he takes up residence in the church. And Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 2, at the end of that, he he says that the church is the new temple as well. And uh, it's us to each other and to the world. We bring this sacramental uh, presence of Jesus. Um, and you, you think about someone like you know, Mother Teresa. What was Mother Teresa doing in, in Calcutta? She was being Jesus yeah. to the, the marginalized, the sick, the poor, the people that needed a, a touch of Jesus. She wasn't just going representing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, when she would, I, she said this in an interview, um, you know, when, when I kiss a leper, when I put my hand on somebody, when I speak to them, it is the lips of Jesus, it is the hand of Jesus. Yep. This ministering, like, as you mentioned, this eternal love to people in a broken world. Yep. And so that sacramental nature of the church is so important. As Jesus sits enthroned uh, as high priest, continuing to do that ministry, that all that that all kind of funnels through us in our bodies, yeah. As the mystical body of Christ, as we take His presence to a world that's hurting and broken and dark and godless, and yeah, Mark, you keep on bringing up really good allusions to uh, John chapter thirteen through sixteen, which theologians often, I think, don't they call it the Olivet Discourse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus' final. Well, the oh, no, no, the Olivet Discourse is. Uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and That's Luke right. 21. Okay, yeah. This would be his upper room. Upper yeah, room. Uh, okay, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. this is his final, final discourse of him yeah. before his passion and death. And he keeps speaking about the ascension. And there's that really verse that I think comes off weird to us. That he tells his disciples, greater works than these you will do. Yeah. 
And um, and you you bring a great point by bringing up saints like Mother Teresa, because um, like qualitatively, like how can anyone do anything greater than what Jesus did? Like I uh, don't know everything that every Catholic saint has done. I I think that's not humanly possible. But in all my study, I've never encountered someone um, feeding five thousand people with fish and loaves. Um, obviously as Christians, we can't even entertain that someone like died for the sins of the earth. Like there, there are all these things of Christ, um, you know, they're pretty unique to Christ, Mm. but then at the same time, Paul says this really shocking thing that we're the body of Christ. So has mother Teresa multiplied through fish and loaves to feed 5,000 people? No, but how many thousands of saints have fed how many millions of people? And there's, those aren't, nice people doing nice things in memory of a dead man. Those are people who a living man, Jesus Christ, God made flesh. He's continually performing miracles through them. So the ascension is not Jesus did great things and oh, what a wonderful story and how sad that it's over. No, it's actually the beginning of how the story of Jesus Christ becomes the story of every individual who really um, enters into his life sacramentally and opens up his or her life so that they can say with the Apostle Paul, it is not I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. Right. And I think that's a a way we need to actually encourage uh, the church and the saints that um, when we came to Christ, however you came to Christ, maybe you were born in a family that you know knew Jesus or maybe you had a conversion experience but uh, it's it's about entering his story mm-hmm. I think we do a disservice when we ask people you know we tell people, you know here, here's the gospel you can invite Jesus into your story and he can fix you all up mm-hmm. well actually he's been doing something for 2,000 years he invites you into his story so uh, right. you mentioned the body of christ how important it is to realize that we are a part of this and again for lack of a better word i know it really throws people today but the mystical body of christ there is something supernatural about a group of people who have shared in his resurrection are filled with eternal life which is a qualitative god kind of life now that continues the ministry of Jesus mm-hmm. on his behalf, bringing his sacramental presence to the world as he continues to do the high priest you know, thing that, that you've mentioned as the enthroned king of the universe. Mm-hmm. It, it can just so shift our perspective on what the world is like, our place in it. It's like now is the time more than ever to really... We got to double down on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the world is super crazy, and yeah. everybody would agree something's different. Yeah. I, I talked to my dad, and he's like, "Well, I lived in the '60s and the race riots, and I lived through the '70s with the Jimmy Carter economy, and yeah. I lived through the '80s with the, you know, the materialism and the consumers, and I lived through the '90s with the nihilism." And it, it's like it's all though. All of that is happening today. It, used to, it happened in successive decades yeah. previously, but it's like all on the table now. Yeah. Um, it's an intense moment. It's an intense cultural moment. Yeah. So I think the encouragement in all of this, and um, that yes, Jesus is enthroned, but there is no better time for us to be faithful. I, I call it lovingly loud, that as the world pushes against us or... Uh, 
some, you know, maybe the world's getting darker, more evil, you know, but certainly there's some really bad things happening. Well, what a better time than to understand where the mystical body of Christ, that eternal life has come. Jesus is enthroned. He is the high priest. We are the mystical body of Christ that takes his presence, his ministry, uh, his resurrection life into our cultural moment. Like there's just no better so rather than shrink back in fear and go oh my gosh we better hunker down it's time to get in our bunkers because the world is just going crazy the world is going crazy yeah so that means there's no better time to step into the darkness bring light but like it it isn't just these aren't just ideas this isn't just hey we have a different ideology yeah as the mystical body of christ we bring sacramentally his presence to a world that is being consumed by darkness yeah you know um i guess my closing thought is in the in a course i took recently so good from the theology of the body institute um he presented adam and eve's rejection of god's gift in genesis chapter 3 as the beginning of a series of divorces Mm -hmm. the great divorce between god and man initiated from our side not god's uh a sort of divorce of intimacy between the man and the woman where competition and lust and use enter in the picture. Uh, a divorce within man, my desires and my thoughts mm-hmm. are now oftentimes incompatible and cause me distress and immorality. A uh, divorce between man and creation. And the ultimate divorce is uh, the divorce of body and soul, which yeah. we call death. And um, Christ ascending into the heavens is like the healing of all the divorces. Mm, <laughs> it's, that's good. it's the marriage of our humanity with God. It's the marriage of Christ and the church. Um, it's, it's the marriage of the body and the soul. Um, so I think, uh, a world in, in such agony and agony mm-hmm. from all these divorces and divorces always create a lot of chaos and pain and trauma. Um, Christ, um, has healed all of them in his ascension. If, if we will enter into that with him through the cross through the grave up into the very um, right hand of God.